0: You're listening to Her Brilliant Health Radio, episode number five.
1: She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to Her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Kieran Dunstan, shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for.
0: Everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. I'm Dr. Kieran. Please help me welcome my special guest today. Her name is Dr. Jessica Drummond. Jessica is a functional nutrition and integrative women's health expert, and she is the founder of the Integrative Women's Health Institute. She has training and clinical experience as a pelvic and women's health physical therapist, a clinical nutritionist, and a health coach. She is passionate about empowering women who struggle with chronic pelvic pain conditions and hormonal imbalances and supporting women and health and wellness professionals globally. She cares deeply about empowering her patients to take control of their health and has two decades of experience working with women and teaching her colleagues also from an integrative evidence-based and conservative perspective. Welcome. Dr. All right, Jessica- so welcome Dr. Drummond. Jessica Drummond. It's so wonderful to have you. Thanks so
1: much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So I'm very excited to talk to you. As you know, I'm board certified OBGYN and practiced that for many, many years. And so women's integrative health is what I'm I'm also passionate about. And I'm excited to especially get into some of the topics that you're passionate about, including um, pelvic pain, especially in the perimenopausal and older women. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that? How did you become interested in that?
1: Well, I started my career in physical therapy and mostly in sports medicine and orthopedics. So I did a lot of manual therapy. But within the early first couple of years of my practice, I began to specialize in women's health. And that came from working with women with breast cancer surgery who had uh, shoulder injuries post op, things like that. Um, women in pregnancy who had a lot of back and pelvic ring pain, a lot of hip pain rib pain carpal tunnel you know related to pregnancy and postpartum and the physicians you know didn't have a lot of tools for pregnant women and when it came to pain so they were super happy to have us on board and start essentially applying our orthopedic tools to women in pregnancy who couldn't take you know, the common medications that were recommended at the time. So this was almost 20 years ago when I started. And then after the birth, so I spent a long time doing women's health physical therapy, more than 10 years hands-on in women's hospital, you know, everything from manual therapy during labor and delivery to postpartum complications, pelvic pain, uh, incontinence, and some of my most complex patients were women that had chronic pelvic pain conditions stemming from things like endometriosis, vulvodynia, interstitial cystitis and often you know we call those the tr- terrible triplets because often those three show up together in combination with pelvic floor dysfunction and you know it's really a systemic issue there can be constipation um there can be other musculoskeletal issues and you know some things as simple as post-op scar management for uh women in in the postpartum period you know there can be significant pain when the the scars aren't properly managed so um, and, and sexual pain, you know, just recently, as you probably know, ACOG finally came out with this idea that we've been talking about for at least two decades, probably longer, that the fourth trimester, right, that the postpartum recovery It's not sufficient to just have that sort of six-week check, like everything's back to normal. You just jump back into your life, put on your skinny jeans, start having sex, right? You know, because women were coming with a lot of pain. So now, you know, we've been managing fourth trimester issues for a long time. And I think that, you know, the sort of standard guidelines are catching up to that. And then what happened for me personally was after the birth of my first daughter um, in 2003, I... Probably what, it, from what I understand now in functional medicine, had a reactivation of Epstein Barr virus. So I had about four years of being extremely tired, anxious, um, got sick all the time, every cold and flu, every sinus infection. And, you know, there wasn't a lot for me, even though I was working in excellent uh, Western hospitals. Um, You know, the the recommendations were pretty much z pack, take a nap. It's normal to be this tired. You have a baby, you know, (laughs) try some antidepressants, usual stuff. And of course, none of that worked. And so I then discovered functional medicine. Um, I had to, I mean, I was in such bad shape that I had to stop working and stop doing almost anything. You know, at this point, I have like a three, four year old, and I'm trying to just get her to school and just, you know, barely parent uh, for about two years, but turned it all around with functional medicine, functional nutrition, and started to realize that. You know, if my issues had a lot to do with hormonal imbalance, uh, adrenal health issues, mitochondrial issues, you know, all of those things that we can address m- with much better tools in functional medicine, functional nutrition, that I could apply that to my most complex patients with chronic pelvic pain and start kind of integrating that functional nutrition approach with physical therapy. And that's been really successful. And that's what I've been focused on, you know, and other women's health concerns, but a lot of pelvic pain for, you know, really my whole career, but it made that shift when I had that personal experience.
0: Yeah, I think that there's nothing that beats personal experience. That's how I got into functional medicine as well. And I think that there are a lot of areas that aren't addressed in traditional uh, medical practices that really need the support, like you're providing, um, like, what did you call them? The terrible triplets.
1: <laughs> right, right.
0: Yeah. Right. And so I'd love to get into that more because a lot of women who are listening probably are suffering with those issues as well as the other one that you brought up, which is this, um, fourth trimester, and you have the reactivation of the epstein bar, which I think is much more common than thought, and uh, traditional medicine is really not going to recognize that, and it's just going to say, oh, you have a baby, take a nap and <laughs> have a pack." Um, so I think that's why it's vital for those of us who who have had these personal experiences that haven't had, we've had health problems that haven't been addressed by mainstream medicine, and we've got the education it's incumbent upon us to get out there and tell others about it. So I appreciate what you're doing because your pain then becomes your purpose. So I want to make sure that we get into those terrible triplets. And also I'd love to talk about the uh, reactivated Epstein bar. So can you, Share with everybody listening, um, talk a little bit about those terrible triplets and kind of maybe what a mainstream uh, treatment approach might be and how your approach might be different. I know that you work with people all over the world and you also help to educate practitioners all over the world. So I think that this is vital information that people need. So I'd love for you to give more details on that.
1: Sure. Well, you know. Endometriosis is probably the most common in terms of the diagnoses when it comes to chronic pelvic pain. The challenging part about endometriosis is it's not a simple diagnosis to make. It's a surgical diagnosis, as you know. And so women have to have a laparoscopic surgery to really understand even if they have endometriosis. I personally think that's a valuable thing to do if you have the symptoms of endometriosis because for the sake of fertility preservation, even if your symptoms are not completely debilitating which often they are in endometriosis but you know early if you know if there's a lot of kind of period challenges and you know heavy cycles and painful irregular cycles and in fact, in teenagers, um, having pelvic pain that's not necessarily cyclical is a in, is a risk factor for endometriosis. So, I think having a skilled excision surgeon on the team to really evaluate whether or not this patient actually has endometriosis, and then you know, considering doing excision surgery is an important part of the puzzle. But then where I come in, so pelvic floor physical therapy is also an important part of the puzzle. There's scar management, there's neuromuscular reeducation of the abdominal and pelvic floor muscles. Sometimes they're weak, but often they're weak and tight. You know, it's kind of like if you've been walking around with your shoulders by your ears for 10 years when no one's diagnosed your menstrual pain, you, you know, you have a lot of neck and shoulder pain and headaches. And it's kind of the same thing in the pelvic floor. It was originally called the headache in the pelvis. So, while the pelvic floor dysfunction is not you know a direct cause of endometriosis it can be a sequela of having that chronic pelvic pain for so long So pelvic floor physical therapy is important, but also with both vulvodynia, so vulvodynia is when you have specific pain at the very entrance of between the vulva and the vagina. So the, the vulva is kind of the external genitals. I should pull out my model. Let's see, hold on a second. (laughs) That'd
0: be awesome. And just for everybody listening while you're getting that, So endometriosis is when the lining to the inside of the uterus, the endometrium, endo meaning inside, metrium meaning uterus, gets outside the uterus and it can implant on ovaries, fallopian tubes, the the peritoneum that lines the abdominal cavity, it can implant on bowel, it can implant anywhere. And there's several different hypotheses about how that occurs. One is the retrograde menstruation hypothesis that endometrium is going up through the fallopian tubes and outside. Um, There's a hypothesis that has to do with um, tissue retaining its ability to become other types of tissue. And so it spontaneously becomes that type. Um, There's an infectious hypothesis I think now there's also autoimmune hypothesis. So there are all kinds of hypothesis about how it happens, but the main issue, there's also hormonal hypothesis, is that the tissue is not where it's supposed to be and it bleeds every month. And when it's inside the peritoneal cavity and it's bleeding, that's causing scar tissue because the body doesn't want it there and it creates um, inflammatory processes to try to kind of sequester that blood and stop it and that creates all kinds of scar tissue and all of that is painful when it's not supposed to be there. So just giving everybody up to date, but yeah, please show your model.
1: Yeah, and so that that endometrial-like tissue, it's not exactly the same tissue as inside the uterus, but it kind of forms these um, benign growths. So, and, and they actually do, while they're not cancerous, they're, they increase the risk for cancer. So going back to vulvodynia, which is often similar. So here's my pelvic floor model. So, okay, if you're looking at your pelvis, this is like where the baby's head comes down and here are your hip bones. And then if we shift that up, um, you've got the external tissues here are the vulva. And, you know, a lot of us just were never taught our anatomy, right? I have patients who are in their 40s who have had kids and have like never understood where everything is here. So the external tissues, the clitoris, the, the um, labia, the, there are two sets of labia. There are some glands here that secrete and, and allow your moisture for the, vag, uh, the both the vulva and the vagina. And then kind of right here where there's the entrance way to the vagina. So technically the vagina is like, literally the canal, the birth canal between the uterus and the external opening here. And then right here, there's the vulvar vestibule, which is the like, literally the vestibule is like, you know, your uh, foyer in your house, right? It's the entryway. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So anytime there's significant pain kind of right in this opening, it's, and there are little different distinctions we can make. The, the vaginal foyer has slightly different tissue embryo, embryo, embryologically, but that is when you have vulvodynia, when there's pain in the vulva or the vulvar vestibule. And so, and as you can see, actually, this is several layers of muscle, right? So there are some deep pelvic floor muscles. There are some very small superficial pelvic floor muscles here, and this is sort of the representation of the clitoris, this little yellow button, but of course the clitoris is deep and it has two legs. It's much bigger than it appears from the outside of the vulva. And notice that there's a lot of tissue right here. So imagine if a woman had uh, an episiotomy and this might've been cut through. There's very There are a lot of layers of fascia and muscle. Here are the deeper pelvic floor muscles with which also integrate with the external anal sphincter and some other more superficial muscles around the rectum. And again, this is in the pelvis. So you can't sort of take the pelvic floor out of the body. It's connected to the hips and the spine and the tailbone. So if there are, you know, inside the small cavity, there are those three organ systems. There's your bladder in the front. There's the uterus in the middle and the rectum in the back, and there's not a lot of space in there. So, if you have endometrial growths or you have even just constipation or any kind of inflammation in any of the organs inside of the pelvis, there's this neurologic crosstalk which irritates the other organs inside the pelvis. So, that's why you can have, you know, vulvar pain which also can sort of incite bladder pain or uterine pain or trigger kind of poor bowel habits, which can make slow down gut motility. So I like to take a, essentially a systems approach. So with endometriosis, surgery or at least a surgical consult is a part of the picture. With all three of these most common pelvic pain conditions, interstitial cystitis, Vulvodynia or endometriosis or a combination of those, calming down the musculoskeletal, making sure there's good blood flow, making sure those muscles can move but don't walk around tight all the time. That they they also have the ability to relax. So you've got good blood and lymph flow. That there aren't essentially little knots in the muscles, just like you would get in your neck, little tension areas. Um, that the hips move freely, all of that is very important for all of the pelvic floor, pelvic pain conditions. And then what I tend to do is layer on top of that, the more functional medicine, functional nutrition approach, where we address these systems that really all come together right there in the pelvis. So starting with digestion because if you can't absorb nutrients and you can't poop, then or you're not pooping regularly, then your hormones will essentially by default be out of balance because you can't have you don't have the building blocks you need to create those same thing if you have inflammation in the area if your digestive function is off and your circulation and lymph flow is off you can't clear that inflammation so we start with really working on digestion hormones detoxifications which starts with poop you know you can't if you're moving things out of the liver but you can't excrete then you're in trouble there and then similarly for the bladder pain and potentially for endometriosis and vulvodynia, and, and at least in my research in vulvodynia, I definitely think about the immune system because this all of these things can have some autoimmune components as well. So We kind of take that system by system approach, knowing that as we clear and improve the functioning of each system, the other systems will start to improve too, just because of neurologic proximity.
0: Right. And um I, I think it's important for everybody listening to know that there, there may be local factors for these three issues, but there are also systemic factors. And that's what Dr. Jessica is getting to getting at and talking about. So it's important that if you are evaluated and treated, you are evaluated and treated systemically. So what does that mean? That means like she's talking about that your detoxification is up to par because if it's not, then your hormones are gonna be out of balance um, because you poop out your hormone byproducts and if you're not pooping them out then they're getting reabsorbed. And inflammation would be another systemic problem that's huge with interstitial cystitis um, vulvodynia and also with en- endometriosis so you've got to look at systemic inflammation and then you have to look at the local factors also and she's talking about the fact that um vascularity, blood flow, muscle spasm, all of these are very important um, and this is something that I know as a board-certified OBGYN is not a typical part of our regular training. So it's essential and I'm so happy that people like you are addressing these things with people. So tell me what your approach would be for somebody who might be listening, who might be suffering with interstitial cystitis, also called IC. How would you approach
1: that? Well, I would... Always include pelvic floor physical therapy because calming the the muscles, kind of calming any tension in the muscles, addressing any uh, taut scars in the region can give some fairly early pain relief or at least pain reduction. But then from a systemic approach, first of all, if there is an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestines and that alone is improved, 47% of the time I see symptoms just disappear. Mm -hmm. So I start with digestion, you know, are you chewing your food? So let's talk about the, couple reasons why there might be an overgrowth of bacteria in your small intestines. Now, most people have probably heard by now of the gut microbiome, all these um, bacteria that live in our colon. So the colon is the large intestine, but before the food gets there, there's the small intestine where most of the nutrients are absorbed. And there shouldn't actually be a heck of a lot of bacteria and fungi and other microbes in the small intestine because if they're getting in the way, you can't absorb your nutrients. One of the ways, one of the, the key signs that you might have an overgrowth of bacteria or funguses or other microbes in your small intestine is if you're bloated. So if you if it's like anything you eat causes bloating, then I would recommend that you're tested for small intestine, bacterial, or fungal overgrowth. And how would that bacteria get into the small intestine? Well, basically there's two ways. One, you don't have enough acid in your stomach to kill off the bacteria because the stomach is supposed to kind of keep us safe from the bacteria that's on our food. None of our food is sterile and that's perfectly fine. But if you take like one bite, you barely chew it, you go into a stomach that has had, you know, uh, reflux reducing medications for the last 10 years, right? And so you have hardly any stomach acid. You can't kill off that bacteria so we can get into the small intestine. Conversely, it can kind of back up into the small intestine from the large intestine. So there's a valve between those two intestines called the ileocecal valve. And if you've had a colon surgery or any kind of abdominal surgery, that valve can be irritated. If you have problems with motility, like your gut's not moving very much, and that can simply come from hey, you've just been like sitting in a chair like this typing for the last 10 years and you haven't exercised at all. You haven't like moved your abdomen, right? And so some there's some physical therapy techniques called visceral mobilization that can help the mobility of that uh, valve. And there are also some supplements that we can use. So there's a supplemental approach, there's a nutrition compo- approach. And when you apply that to kind of getting these systems moving act- uh, appropriately inside the body, then we can get rid of that overgrowth from the root cause. So that's one of the core things I look at with interstitial cystitis. The other is the microbiome in general. Inside the vagina, there's supposed to be some uh, a large number of these healthy probiotic bacteria called the lactobacilli, and again, if that if that canal is healthier, then you're going to kill off more of the bad bacteria, which can cause problems in the bladder, can cause overgrowth of yeast, um, you know. So, and there are micro little regions of bacteria all over our body that are very different, but the kind of um, queen of those is the microbiome in the gut. So if we can get that well balanced, a lot of times the, the lymph connections between the microbiome in the gut and these other sort of smaller submicrobiota, all of the other submicrobiota function better. The microbiome in your mouth in around the placenta, around the va- vagina and bladder, really all starts with the gut. And I think when it comes to endometriosis, hormones are a huge piece of the puzzle. And as you said, one of the biggest issues in endometriosis is that essentially you have a dominance of estrogen compared with progesterone, plus that endometrial-like tissue doesn't really have good progesterone receptors. So even if your hormones are in balance, it can feel like an uh, excessive estrogen which has to be processed through the liver. So if you pretty much live on sugar and haven't had a green vegetable in a while, your liver can't process that estrogen. It's working too hard to process the sugar and maybe alcohol and medications and things like that.
0: Yeah. So a lot of information in there. And with the interstitial cystitis, another thing, do you look at, um, I'm sure you do look at food sensitivities. I used to find even just simply getting people off the diet sodas because of the aspartame was a huge bladder irritant and they'd stop drinking the diet, Dr. Pepper. And then all of a sudden, Oh my, my bladder doesn't bother me anymore. And I don't have to pee all the time.
1: Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I have a great story about that. So this was a long time ago, about 15 years ago, I had a patient who had bladder incontinence and urgency. She had both stress and urge incontinence mm-hmm. and she had some bladder pain. And we did a, a bladder diary where essentially you track what you eat and drink and see when you're having your incontinence. And it was the most clear cut case I'd ever seen. It was like as soon as she drank diet, Dr. Pepper is literally the worst.
0: Yes. <laughs> it is. I don't know what else is in it besides the aspartame that does it, but it's horrible for bladders.
1: Yes. So diet, Dr. Pepper was hers. Diet Coke is another bad one, but those two are probably the top two bad ones. So every time she had, whether I can't remember now, whether there was diet, Dr. Pepper or Diet Coke, but they were both bad. She would have, she would leak. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. You have a really simple case here. Basically, all you have to do is stop drinking diet soda. And she said to me, and she was a young woman, she was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Is there anything else I can do?
0: (laughs) Is there a pill I can take? Can I just take a pill and keep drinking
1: it? Yeah. So I said to her, I was like, well, no, I mean, you know, we can improve it. So we did some pelvic floor strengthening. We kind of Did some other training around it, bladder retraining. But at the end of the day, she she weaned down to one diet soda a day and knew she was going to have at least a little bit of leaking once a day. So that was her decision. But yeah.
0: That is a great story. Thank you for that. And I'm going to say people listening, when you have dis-ease, disease, dis-ease in the body, it is not a sign to take a pill or have somebody do something to you. It is your body talking to you, giving you a message. I don't like something. I'm not happy. Yes. (laughs) And the message, you know, if, if you're gonna try and hold on to your habits that you may have, which for most of us, we have some that are harming our health is just, you're never gonna get optimally healthy. And this show is about brilliant health, her brilliant health. If you want brilliant health, you gotta do something different to get different results. So I, I think more than anything, I think it's important that you understand that your habits that you have every day are affecting your health and be willing to make changes. The reason why you don't want to give up the Diet Dr. Pepper is because you're addicted to it. But you can, you can get off of it and go into Diet Dr. Pepper rehab. <laughs> and your bladder will thank you. But also it's important for everybody listening to know that if your bladder is speaking to you that way about the Diet Dr. Pepper, there are other parts of your body that are having problems too that aren't as vocal yet. They're not happy, but they're not screaming at you yet, but they will start screaming at you. It may take a year. It may take five years. It may take 10 years, but it could be something as serious as diabetes at that point. Well, if it's diet, Dr. Pepper, probably not, but um, it could be other problems elsewhere. Yeah. Even more serious. So I I have so many patients with that diet, Dr. Pepper. uh,
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, when I think of the bladder, so we talk about one of the common issues that people might've heard of is leaky gut, right? Where you're having, you're eating foods that you're sensitive to. And for the bladder, some of the common sensitivities are gluten or wheat, uh, dairy, eggs, caffeine, alcohol, um, sometimes spicy foods with the bladder. You know, I take an elimination diet approach with the goal of optimizing digestive function, And that includes the lining of the small intestine. So if that's leaky, then you can trigger some of these autoimmune issues. But there are some theories too that there's this lining around the bladder. So same thing, if we're eating foods that irritate us all the time, we're kind of irritating that sensitive lining that keeps the bladder healthy and not inflamed. And more and more, the data is showing the same thing around essentially the lining around the brain, right? Your your um, blood brain barrier, right? So when I, I really think it's important for women in their forties in particular to start paying attention to these smaller irritants, because particularly for the brain, so if you have irritated bladder and you also have brain fog, you are on a path to dementia and not a very long path, like within five to 10 years of beginning signs of dementia. And really that's because your what you're eating, your stress level, lack of sleep, all of these things, lack of movement, are contributing to overall inflammation that are showing up in little symptoms everywhere, like this irritating bladder urgency, this irritating brain fog. None of it is serious yet, and it's much easier to reverse it now, but wait just five or 10 years, and both of these things can be pretty serious.
0: Yeah, I think that's a huge point is that sometimes we can discount these smaller symptoms and we just want the symptom to go away. But like Jessica's sharing, there there are signs that you're having problems elsewhere that are going to have more serious consequences like Dementia. So pay attention, pay attention. And I love what you shared about your experience in the fourth trimester with being tired and finding out that you had reactivated Epstein-Barr virus. That's something that I think is is really overlooked. I, the majority, if not ninety to hundred percent of people that I test, actually I find have been exposed to Epstein-Barr virus, and oftentimes having a reactivation of that virus is is the cause of chronic fatigue, although there are other causes. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk about how you work with women with with that diagnosis.
1: Yeah. So with significant fatigue, and I sort of muddled my my way through, I didn't have really a protocol at the time, but essentially with Epstein-Barr, you can you can put it back, you can quiet it back down. You know, once you have it, you sort of always have it. And, you know, as a teenager, I had mono. The doctor was like, oh, you can never have it again. And then like three years later in the beginning of college, I had it again. You know, so, but then it was quiet for a long time until I had my daughter. And it, what really the approach is, is to kind of have an antiviral lifestyle in the sense that there are lots of foods that are antiviral oregano um and all the antioxidants rosemary so colorful fruits and vegetables a mediterranean ish diet right and but not sugar and processed grains and processed foods those things actually feed the um the virus and so when you shift your nutrition to be antiviral. And then of course, you know, if you're aware of this, which I really wasn't at the time, but now when when we're aware of this, we can use some antiviral supplementation. Um, and there is really creating this lifestyle where your body is is a more robust organism. You know, your immune system can better fight off things like this or kind of keep them in check. And really the way to do that, you know, getting to bed at a reasonable hour, shutting off the blue light screens by eight o'clock at night, getting up in the morning and during the day and actually having some outdoor light exposure where you're taking a walk outside, you're not always wearing sunglasses, you're not always behind windows, you know, things like vitamin D or antiviral, um, So I think it's really about creating a lifestyle where your body, your immune system is robust, your digestive function is working well so that you can absorb a clean, nutrient-dense, very colorful food plan that also includes lots of herbs and spices, you know, because a lot of times, those herbs and spices do things, you know, they make our food taste good, which makes things more pleasurable, which is important, but they also trigger digestive enzymes. They're also antiviral. So you can actually eat in a way that fights off not just Epstein Barr, but every virus, the cold virus, the flu virus, right? So that's something that takes a shift because when you're fatigued and you're really overwhelmed, You're just like, I'll just order a pizza, I'll just watch Netflix and chill, but you're not doing anything to help the body recover. You've got to actually eat really nourishing foods to do that.
0: Right, and, and I think it's important. I just want to make sure everybody listening um, just realizes that there are a lot of viruses that once you get them, you kind of always have them. I'd say chickenpox is probably the most well-known. So once you have the chickenpox as a child, that varicella zoster virus lives in your nerve roots and can come out at a later time um, as shingles. But Epstein-Barr is another one of those, and there are actually several of them. Um, and So when that virus, uh, when you live an antiviral lifestyle, and I kind of like that, it's really catchy, (laughs) antiviral lifestyle. then you are maintaining your immune system function at such a high level that it keeps any chronic viruses suppressed Mm -hmm. so that they don't come out and cause you a problem like um, the uh, shingles or having a reactivation of the Epstein-Barr that one of the main symptoms is just this chronic overwhelming fatigue.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And I can relate to that too, because I had a chronic Epstein-Barr virus infection too. And that was one of the reasons why one of many why I was having all the health problems that I was having when I practiced traditional OBGYN Uh, that I didn't have an answer to because I I wasn't trained. My board certification training didn't include training in how to diagnose what's the cause of chronic fatigue, what's the cause of obesity, which I had also. Uh, And then when I discovered functional medicine and I started doing these tests, I had so many of the problems that we've already talked about. So low uh, progesterone, high estrogen, thyroid dysfunction. I mean, the list was extremely long. Uh, so everybody listening, just know that if you probably do have Epstein-Barr virus, most people do. And if you're having fatigue, that could be one of the reasons why that maybe it's reactivated. And so some of the suggestions that Dr. Jessica has made are things that you could do today. Go to bed on time, shut off the blue screens, eat a predominantly plant-based diet. So these are wonderful suggestions that I thank you for sharing. And there's so much, I mean, I could talk to you for hours because yeah. we're both passionate about the same things, which is Integrative Women's Health. And you um, have the Integrative Women's Health Institute and your website, and you have a free gift for people. I'd love for you to tell them about it.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we have a free video training for you on how to naturally balance your hormones in Three steps, and um, a lot of it starts with what we've talked about today. So, kind of step by step approach. And if it feels overwhelming to say like, "Oh, I've got to sleep differently, and I've got to move differently, and I've got to eat differently," start with one of those things and make take baby steps. I mean, I've been improving my health now personally for a, more than ten years, and you know. It, you can make small changes that make big di- a big difference over time.
0: Yes, that's a very good point. And we'll put the link in the show notes that you can go to to sign up for that important uh, webinar that she's going to do, that masterclass. And I'd love to ask you, the show is called Her Brilliant Health. How do you define brilliant health for women?
1: I define brilliant health. Oh my goodness. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that. I define brilliant health as having energy to do essentially whatever you want throughout the day. That's my definition. It's really about energy and about choosing how you live your life.
0: Yes. I love that. It is, about, it's so much about energy and you've given so many tips for everybody listening to, to try today, but what would be your top three tips if you want to have brilliant health these are the three things i would do recommend you do today
1: number one is as much laughter as possible so be around people that are positive and funny and fun and the second would be move your body in some way every day and if you're really fatigued that simple thing with that simple movement practice could literally be get yourself outside and sit in the sun and just breathe deeply. And the third thing would be eat as much, as many vegetables as you can possibly enjoy and start to learn how to cook them so that you really enjoy vegetables. They really have so many things in them that are, you know. Uh, positive medicine for you. So if, you're, if you really just don't like vegetables and you don't eat a lot of vegetables, choose one and start to play with cooking with it.
0: I love that. So uh, we've got laugh, move, eat veggies, three things you can do today. And I'm going to challenge everybody listening to pick one or maybe more of those. And just do it today, just do it today. And you'll start noticing small changes lead to big results. It's one step at a time. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Jessica Drummond, founder of the Integrative Women's Health Institute. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing for women globally and many blessings. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining me for this episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. Hopefully you're inspired to take action on some new information you received today. A step towards the bountiful, blissful, beautiful vitality that you deserve. If you have health topics and questions you'd like addressed, please message me on my Facebook page or visit KieranDunstonMD.com and let me know. I'd love to help. Remember to share this podcast on social media and send it to your friends and family who could benefit from it too. If you love the show, please go right now to iTunes, write a review, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when future episodes are available. Thank you again for joining me. And remember, achieving optimal health isn't magic, it's science.